Hi everyone, thanks for joining. This is Seeking Sustainability Live. It's Monday morning here in Japan, so it's a perfect time to talk about beer, right? We love to talk about beer on Monday mornings. Have you got、uh, a beer there with you, Jacob? I do, I do not. I am, I am drinking coffee, but you know what? It's probably drinking time somewhere else in the world. So, wherever you're joining us from, I hope you can take this knowledge that we're going to impart about craft beer in Japan and use it whenever it is drinking time for you. Thank you so much for joining. Today, we have Matthew Boynton working in Tokyo at Sakamichi Brewers. Thank you so much, Matthew. Thank you very much for having me. It's a real pleasure to be here. It's great to have you. I'm really interested in what you're doing,、uh, your training.、Uh, where should we start? Let's start with how you ended up in Japan a little bit. You, wait, I've heard this on other podcasts. You met a lovely Japanese woman when you were in the UK, and then you came to Korea, and then finally to Japan. Is that right? That is 100% correct, yes. I,、uh, my wife was a visiting student at my university, the University of Edinburgh in the UK.、Uh, we met there and I decided, hey, why not? Let's,、uh, let's go to Japan and see how things are. I took a, a one year detour to South Korea along the way. I got a bit lost, but,、uh, but I eventually managed to find my way here in Japan. I think that was about 15 years ago that I arrived here. Awesome. And your brewery is called Sakamichi. And can you give us a little bit of an orientation about the name and where it is? Absolutely. Yeah, so we're in Tachikawa, which is in the west of Tokyo. Tachikawa is kind of the gateway to further west into Tokyo,、um, into the mountains and so on.、Um, and I founded、uh, this brewery together with a good friend of mine called Daniel Bellamy. Uh, and we originally got to know each other through cycling, specifically through cycle touring.、Um, we like to put our tents on the back of our bicycles and, and ride around Japan, seeing the countryside and drinking lots of good local beer as well.、Uh, and when we were trying to think of a name for the brewery, we, we went back again and again to, to our cycle touring experience.、Uh, and usually Dan was the one who would make the maps and plot the route. For wherever it was that we were going.、Uh, and almost without fail, we would find ourselves having to ride up a staircase or one time very memorably along the top of a sea wall with a good 30 foot drop、uh, on one side of it. And the joke every time was, well, this is a very interesting road you've chosen for us. What an interesting road this is.、Uh, and so that phrase, interesting roads, really stuck with us.、Um, And making your own brewery, making a craft brewery in Japan is also a fairly interesting road that we have chosen. So we couldn't translate it exactly 100%, but Sakamichi, it means steep road or mountain road, right? And it's also fairly easy for people, both English speakers and Japanese speakers, to say. So it seemed like a really good match for us.、Um, we do sometimes get customers coming into our tap room. You're showing some pictures of it there. And the street outside is not steep. At all. It's completely flat. So people come in and say, very confused, well, why are you called Sakamichi Brewing? This road isn't, isn't steep at all. But that's a nice opportunity to be able to explain the story of how Dan and I met、uh, and why it is that we're running a brewery together. I love that. And so, so Saka, because Saka means steep hill、uh, brewery, because it's a beer brewery.、Um, it looks like you did some remodeling, really nice wood you're using there. You've got lots of taps. Behind, how many、uh, beers do you have on tap right now?、Uh, we have eight taps. 
Um, so three to four of them are usually our own beer. Uh, and then the rest, we, we try and skew more towards domestic Japanese beer, but we do have a few imports as well, usually. Awesome. And we, we've got a question right away. Uh, people want to get right into it. Uh, how, where do you source your hops? So in terms of sustainability, this is definitely something we want to talk about because beer, craft beer is high quality. You're using a lot of local ingredients. Uh, you've talked in other podcasts about using yuzu citrus, uh, the seasonal citrus sometimes in Japan. Um, but, and of course, local water, but you do have to import some of the ingredients, right? Can you talk about that a little bit? That's right. Yes. Yeah. So we do import some of our hops. We would love to be able to use more Japanese hops. Uh, hops are a kind of a tricky plant to grow. They like to have access to a lot of water, but they don't like humidity at all. Uh, and so the location where you grow them is really important. Uh, and similarly to wine grapes, the sort of the microflora in the soil also has quite a big impact on the character of the hops and on the flavor and aroma that you get out of them as well. So choosing the right place to grow them is really important. There are some places in Japan where it's possible to grow hops, um, especially up north towards Yamagata or even Hokkaido. There is some hop growing there. Um, but for the most part, most domestic hops are kind of tied up in contracts with the big Japanese brewers. So for us small guys, it's very hard to get access to, to most Japanese hops. Uh, and that does mean that we rely on imported hops for the most part. Yeah, good question. Uh, we have a natural farmer, organic farmer here in Hiroshima, uh, Thomas, Thomas Klepfer, who's been on the series, and he is also a big fan of craft beer. And he is trying to grow hops, but it doesn't seem to be the easiest crop to grow, maybe in the area that he's in. So hopefully we'll have more domestic hops for you to choose from. And the other ingredients, so is it malt barley that you also have to import? Yeah, malted barley is one of the other main ingredients. Um, again, the domestic barley here in Japan isn't, for, for various kind of complicated scientific reasons, isn't 100%, 100% suitable for, for making into beer. Um, the local wheat, domestic wheat is, uh, and we do use domestic wheat where we can. Uh, I used to work at Baird Brewing and we used a lot of domestic wheat in our beer there. Um, but for the malted barley, yes, that does tend to be imported, um, usually from places uh, like Europe or the US. Well, this is a good segue into introducing your experience training with Baird Brewery. I'll show their website. Uh, can you give us an introduction about them and what you did there? Yeah, absolutely. So uh, Baird Brewing, uh, a brewery, one of the kind of the original craft breweries here in Japan. Um, they're located currently in Shuzenji, which is in the middle of the Izu Peninsula, um, part of Shizuoka Prefecture. Um, so in 2017, I'd been working as an English teacher for a little over 10 years, uh, and it kind of felt like that career was drawing to a natural end. I was no longer in the classroom. I was kind of in HR and doing a lot of interviewing and things like that. And so I, I thought about trying a new challenge. And uh, I enjoyed drinking beer. Um, I enjoyed the, the, the process of beer making. Uh, and I have 
a very slight background in, in engineering and in food preparation. So I thought, hey, why not give it a go? Why not try working in a, in a craft brewery? So I, I cold emailed Baird uh, and they surprisingly, they got back to me and they, they tried to talk me out of it, but they weren't successful. And I, I eventually went down to, to Shuzenji to work first as an apprentice brewer and then as an assistant brewer in their brewery there. They have a really spectacular facility down in Shuzenji. Um, it's it's out in the countryside. It's surrounded by really beautiful nature. There's um, there's a nice campsite there as well, so you can go down and you can camp, and you can drink a lot of very delicious craft beer as well. Yeah, awesome. Um, I'm seeing the history on their website right now um, that he did his training for craft brewing in California. Is that right? Looks like it. Yes, I think that is right. Yes. Mm. And you also worked at another brewery, uh, Ishikawa Brewery. Do you want to talk about that? That's right, Ishikawa Shuzo. So I was down at bed for close to a year and a half. But uh, that whole time, my family, and I'm married and I have two young kids, they were still back up here in Tokyo. So every weekend, I would travel from Shuzenji back up to Tokyo to spend time with my family and then go back down to Shuzenji again for the working week. Uh, and... For about a year and a half, that was great. And working at bed was, it was a really great place to work. But my son was, you know, one year old and he didn't really know who I was. I was just some guy who showed up every weekend. Um, so I had a look around for some opportunities in Tokyo, a bit closer to home. And I was lucky enough to find this brewery, which is actually just up the road from where I live uh, in West Tokyo. So I was able to cycle commute there every day. Uh, and Ishikawa Shuzo are primarily uh, a sake brewery. That's the, the product that they've been making for, for over 100 years now. But they also make beer, and they have a, a, a beer brewery on site as well. So I was hired to work as one of the brewers uh, in the beer brewery there. But I also got to see some of the sake-making process and to, to drink some very nice sake as well. Wow, that sounds like a win-win. And uh, I heard I heard you talking in one of the other podcasts uh, about uh, the jobs that you would do when you were training. So most of it was cleaning, in, including the cleaning the hops container, which sounded crazy. You actually get inside the the steamer or the boiler and clean out all the hops. That really doesn't sound like the nicest job, but very necessary to keep everything clean, right? That's that's absolutely right. So keeping everything clean and sanitary in a brewery is basically the most important thing that you can do. Um, we're dealing with a, a biomechanical process. The yeast is changing the wort into beer. Uh, and so if there are any kind of contaminants, um, any other bacteria or anything like that in the tanks or around the brewery, that's going to change the character of the beer and it's going to it's going to work in an uncontrollable way. Uh, and so cleaning is really, really important. That's the, the main thing we do. Craft brewing is 90% cleaning. Uh, and the job that you're referring to there is specifically at bed. We only ever used whole flower hops, which are hops that have been minimally processed. And they still kind of look like mini pine cones, I think. Uh, and so after the, the boiling was done, um, you're left, though, with a kettle, a big kettle full of wet, hot hops. Uh, and you can't flush those down the drain or anything. You need to actually get in there with a bucket and a sieve and just kind of dig them all out. Uh, and 
it, it was hot work and it was certainly cramped work. Um, but I don't know, before I, before I did it for the first time, everyone was building it up as, as this was going to be the worst job that anybody had ever done in their entire lives. But I don't know, I used to work in a smoked salmon factory and, and that was a lot worse than what I had to do in, in the kettle. Oh, well, that talking about fish actually brings me to my next question. Um, there was an interesting comment that uh, American politician made last year about how uh, Biden's administration was going to plant base your beer. And everybody was laughing, saying, what? But all beer is plant based. And then actually, I started doing research. Not all beer is plant based. There is something called, wait, I have the word here, isinglass, which is using a kind of fish gut filter to clarify the beer. Is, is that something you guys use? Is your, is your beer plant-based? You make it sound so delicious. Uh, yes, isinglass is a kind of, I think it's some kind of gallbladder from the fish that is uh, processed and used to clarify the beer. Um, but no, we do not use isinglass. Um, I guess the question is, do, does yeast count as a plant or not, Ooh. right? Because all beer has yeast in it and yeast is a fungus. Fungus is more similar to an animal than to a plant. So I guess you could say that no beer is plant-based uh, in that case. I think that's a stretch because I think most <laughs> most vegans or plant-based diet, they would be happy with mushrooms, which is also okay. a fungus. Um, so let's just stay away from the fish guts for the filter and say that your beer is plant-based. That sounds good. Yes, that is correct. <laughs> okay, wonderful. Um, yeah, so that was a real revelation. I had no idea about that process. And apparently some of the major breweries in Japan also use this fish gut filter. So check whether your uh, beer is plant-based before you indulge if you are looking for plant-based options. Rather uh, than <laughs> ice and glass. Sorry, we, we do use a plant-based solution. So there's a, a kind of seaweed called Irish moss, um, which uh, is used by brewers to, to clarify the beer instead. Uh, and so we're using um, seaweed instead of fish guts. That sounds much better. I am a huge fan of seaweed and kelp and seaweed growing because we have now discovered that it captures more carbon than forests, than right. trees do. So the more seaweed, the better. Uh, let's use it for everything. I love it. So you're saying that everyone should drink more beer? More beer made with seaweed. Absolutely. Definitely. I 100% agree with that. Yeah. Now, speaking of food, because we're kind of on the seaweed food front here, um, you also ask people or invite people to bring their own food. You don't really serve food in your place. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. So our tap room is in Tachikawa, which is in the west of Tokyo. Um, Tachikawa has a fairly vibrant nightlife scene already. There are a lot of restaurants and bars here. Uh, and so when we were talking about setting up a brewery in Tachikawa, we thought, well, we don't want to directly compete with all of these restaurants because A, they already provide a, a really good service and we don't really have the expertise required to, to open and run a restaurant in that kind of competitive environment. And B, we want to be able to sell beer to all of these places. So if we're a direct competitor, that's going to be more difficult for us. Uh, and so actually 
we let people bring in whatever food they want into the tap room. Of course, they don't have to. But if you want to eat something, then there are lots of good restaurants uh, around in Tachikawa, lots of local businesses for you to support. Uh, and some places will even deliver to your table. So we have some local restaurants who will leave a menu with us. And then if somebody wants to eat something, they can just call up that restaurant and they will bring the food around to, to where you're sitting. Uh, I will add that that is the case under normal circumstances. But of course, now we're in the state of emergency in Tokyo. So we're not open for drink-in custom at the moment. Uh, but come August 23rd, hopefully, we'll be back to usual. Great. Um, I love that idea because in terms of when we talk about sustainability on this show, we're talking about trying to find a balance between people, planet and profits. So developing a system where you support other local businesses in some way, you're helping the local economy. This is all a very important part of sustainability and whether you're going to be around in 10, 20 years. So, yeah, so glad to hear that. That sounds like a great way to give people the option to eat, but to also support great local eateries. Yeah, I, I wish that we could also take credit for it. But uh, this was the system that was in place at uh, the bed tap room in Shizenji. So I, I shamelessly stole it from them, I'm afraid. <laughs> That's okay. Uh, give credit where credit is due. <laughs> Uh, another question we had before we went live today was about uh, the kegs that you use and uh, bring your own containers so people can bring their own growlers or containers to fill up as well as you do use reusable kegs. Is that right? Yeah. So though I guess there are two questions there. The first is about uh, people taking draft beer to go. Uh, and so, yeah, this is a bit of a, a legal minefield in Japan, um, the tax office is really not keen at all on, on filling growlers. But when we're serving draft beer, um, for the most part, people can come in, they can come in with, you know, stainless steel bottles like this, that they own themselves, that they've cleaned themselves. And we're happy to, to fill those with beer, whatever kind of container you have, we'll, we'll fill that with beer for you to, to take away and enjoy at home. Um, as I mentioned, though, because of the current state of emergency, we can't serve draft beer. So we're not doing that at the moment. Uh, you'll have to wait until the 23rd of August. But you do have bottled beer that people could buy and take away, right? Yes, exactly right. Yes. So at the moment, we're operating kind of just as a bottle shop. We have two fridges full of domestic and imported beer in cans and bottles that people can uh, buy to enjoy at home. Um, with regards to the kegs, yeah, so I, I saw these comments and they were quite interesting to me because our experience has been that 100% of domestic craft breweries uh, use stainless steel kegs. And the reason for that is pretty simple. It's because they're cheaper. Um, if you're using uh, a plastic keg, plastic kegs are actually made out of PET for the most part. They have a little bit of ABS plastic for the handle and the base, but they're mostly made out of PET. But if you're using one of those one-way cakes, single-use cakes, they can only be used once because they can't be cleaned. Um, cleaning cakes requires high temperature chemicals and high pressure steam. And the plastic keg, the pet cake, would just explode. It, it wouldn't be able to withstand that. Um, so they can really only be used once. Um, so although the kind of the buy-in cost for a stainless steel keg is higher, 
if you take care of your stainless steel cakes, then they could last 40, 50 years. You know, they're extremely durable. Uh, and so you can, you can spread out that cost. You can, here's a word that I'm not sure of, you can amortize it um, over their entire lifespan. Uh, and that way they work out to be a lot cheaper. Like many things in sustainability, uh, you need to pay a bit higher cost initially as an investment and costs go down over time, like solar panels, like an electric car, like so many other things that it costs a lot at first, but then over time, as the prices of fossil fuels or other things goes up or single use plastic, um, the costs actually go down. So yeah, exactly. great, yeah. great to invest. Uh, when I was in university in the late 80s, we would, like many party goers in American universities, go and rent a keg, a reusable stainless steel keg from the local liquor shop and use that at the parties. And of course, lots of plastic cups, but um, if you had reusable cups, that seems like a perfect situation to really have a zero waste drinking party, right? Absolutely. And that's kind of how our tap room is run. So we have reusable glasses that get washed and reused, and we have stainless steel kegs that the beer is in that get washed and reused. So there's very little waste involved with drinking beer. Maybe there's a lot of wastedness, um, but there isn't very much waste involved. Nice. Sorry, that was, a, that was a very tenuous no, joke. No, I, I feel, I I feel sorry that. for saying yeah. that out loud. A lot of wasted people, yes. but not wasted cups. I love it. Um, so you, I think with, um, oh, God, Mukai Brewing, when I talked to Ken, he, he was an ex-chemistry teacher uh, in the States, and he is really into the chemistry. He has developed this amazing way to filter out pollutants from the wastewater before it goes into this amazing river that he has his brewery next to. If anybody's interested, please have a look at that. That was a great talk last week. Now, I, I don't know if you're a chemistry teacher or if you have a filter process for your wastewater, but you did uh, mention that you're trying to think of what to do with the wasted malt. Is that right? Can you talk to me about that? Sure, yeah. Well, maybe I'll just make a very quick comment on wastewater first. Um, so I'm going to big up Baird again at their facility in Shuzenji. They have a really state-of-the-art wastewater treatment facility where all of the water from the brewery goes into this separate building where it's treated chemically and by various microbes to make it completely safe and pure. Uh, and then that water goes out into the local river the Kamogawa that's going past. Uh, and I believe I'm right in saying that they've had this water tested and it's actually cleaner than the river water that it's going into. So the brewery is in a sense cleaning the river by putting their wastewater into it. Um, so I, I've met Ken actually, he came to the Baird Brewery while I worked there uh, and we had a bit of a chat. So I wonder if he was able to, to gain some inspiration from their wastewater treatment facility. Um, ah, but you're awesome. right. The, the waste, the spent malt is a big question. Uh, what to do for a small craft breweries like us. So just a quick primer on how beer is made. Um, we crush up a whole bunch of malted barley uh, and then we mix it with some warm water and the enzymes in the barley transform the starch into sugar 
and then we separate that hot sweet liquor out from the crushed grains and boil that together with hops and that makes the the wort and then we put that wort into a fermentation tank with some yeast and the yeast eats the sugar changes it into alcohol and carbon dioxide and that's how beer is made so the question is what do you do with the several hundred kilograms of crushed wet grains that you have left over afterwards uh, and so for small places like us the simple answer seems to be well you throw it out with the rest of your burnable garbage you know you you put it into the colored plastic bags and you put it outside and the city takes it away and disposes of it but that's a that's a quite an expensive solution because you you have to pay for all those plastic bags and you have to pay for all that garbage pickup and b it's really not a very environmentally friendly solution because that spent malt it's not worthless it still does have some value uh, and so just throwing it away or throwing it away and burning it really seems like uh, a waste and something that's not good for the environment either and so we've been working together with kind of a, a group of local West Tokyo breweries uh, and a local university to figure out if there's something that we can do to pull together our resources and figure out a better way of dealing with this spent malt. Uh, and so we're still kind of at the information gathering stage at the moment. We're talking to other local breweries. We're talking to um, different researchers to talk about ways that this spent malt could be treated. But some of the ideas that we have are uh, are either that this stuff could be treated and then used as animal feed. Um, it could be dried and treated, used as uh, fertilizer for community gardens or for urban farms. Um, or it can be dried and sterilized and then sold to consumers. That's something that does happen in some breweries uh, in Europe, especially, is that this kind of spent malt is quite good in bread making. I know there's been a real boom in uh, home baking over the course of the pandemic. Uh, and people like having kind of artisanal bread, with lots of seeds and things in it. Well, that's exactly what this is. It's a good bit of roughage that you could put into your bread, uh, either as a home baker or, you know, potentially even as a commercial baker. Now, that's interesting uh, that you mentioned bread because there was one interesting talk, I, I think, last year in the series and he is doing a startup. Originally, they started in Singapore. Now they're in Japan. They're working with bakeries to get their waste bread and use the wasted bread to make beer from the yeast of the wasted bread. Interesting. Yeah, really. That's interesting. very interesting. Beer and bread are essentially the same thing. And there's, there's some argument to be said that sort of the foundation of civilization in ancient Babylon or ancient Egypt was based on beer and bread. Um, you, can, you can dry up your yeast starter, um, the thing that changes the wort into the beer, into a kind of little hard ball, and take that around with you. And you can just drop that into your next batch of wort and make some more beer. But that's the same process that happens in, in bread making. It's just a question of proportions that are slightly different. That's so interesting. I wonder if, um, you know, like Starbucks will do, they'll they'll have the coffee grounds um, in their shop and people can take it to their home gardens. Mm. I wonder if you had your dried out malted waste 
that people could use in their gardens if they wanted to or feed to their pets. I want to say maybe if you have a pig, you might feed it. But... Yeah, absolutely. Um, I know that chickens will will eat okay. um, dried uh, spent malt, uh, pigs, cows even. One of the challenges, though, is that um, hops themselves are poisonous to a lot of animals. Oh, that's So if you want to change it into animal feed, you have to be very sure that you're separating out your spent malt and your spent hops. Right. Yeah. But it seems like composting itself with farmers, that would that would be a easy solution, right? Yeah, if absolutely. Collaborated with a local farmer or something. At, at that point, it would just be about finding the connection and making the logistics work. Um, yeah. I know that at Beds, we did um, work together with several local farmers uh, and maybe once a week we would take the, the dump truck that was full of stinky spent malt drive it over to somebody's farm and just shovel it over one of their fields wow. uh, and then later on we might get some fruit from that farmer in return uh, that awesome. we could use in one of our beers yeah you were talking about that in one of the podcasts about using uh yuzu mm. so the citrus um, which often people put in the bath it's very difficult to to use the juice of there's not actually much juice in each one it's a, a lot of using a little bit of the the outside the rind right mm, mm. um but having that in the beer in certain seasons um adds a little bit of the the charm of seasonality in japan right absolutely it's got it's got really the the smell and taste of new year to me uh, and so yuzu beers are very popular uh, around about new year in japan i think yeah i love that and and you were saying in terms of the process that you can add the puree um, while making the beer, but also you could add it after with some of the, the rind, is that right? Uh, yeah, so you can add um, the adjuncts, the yuzu, the yuzu uh, zest or the yuzu juice uh, at a number of different stages. Um, you could add it while you're boiling the wort. Um, that's gonna extract a lot of aroma and it's also going to sterilize it, which is another big plus. Um, you can add it during the fermentation. Um, you can even add it after the fermentation is finished. Uh, and sort of the temperature that you're adding in these juices or zests at is going to have a big impact on which flavors and how much of those flavors you extract from them. So that's part of the, the art of beer making is that you have to be able to balance a lot of different factors when you're adding interesting ingredients like yuzu. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, there was one beer, and I don't know if this might go back to our meat conversation. There was one beer that I had at a local craft brewery in Hiroshima, and I chose it because it said it, it would have a smoky flavor. And I was like, oh, that sounds nice. And when I I tasted it though. It tasted like meat and I'm a vegetarian and I could not drink it. Oh, really? And I couldn't figure out why it tasted so much like meat. So would that be like a smoky flavor that was maybe added after it was made? Can you guess? Um, so smoked beer is a thing. It's particularly popular. It's a traditional German style Rauch beer. Um, you don't smoke the beer itself. That's initially what I thought, and I was thinking, what, you must bubble the smoke through the beer, or oh, it's going yeah. to be really hard to, to get this beer lit. Um, but what you do is um, you smoke the malt that you use to make the beer. Uh, it's traditionally smoked over beach chips, I think. 
Uh, and then that does add a really smoky character to the malt, which carries through into the beer as well. And yeah, I can see what you mean. I think I've smelled some malt and tasted some beer that almost has a kind of smoky bacon kind of character to it. Yeah. It's a kind of uh, crisps, potato chips in the UK called razzles. Yeah. And I, I said to him, if if that's what you're going for, please market it that way. <laughs> and then vegetarians like me will not choose it, but people who love meat will choose it. Right. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It was perhaps not exactly what you were expecting. No, no, no. Um, speaking of your beers, there was also a great conversation you had about IPAs and how IPA is often put on as a kind of marketing on right. a wide variety of beer. And it's not necessarily one type of beer right now. Is that right? Yeah, I mean, uh, IPA is by far the most popular style of beer in the world at the moment. So a lot of brewers want to call their beer an IPA, no matter what style it really has. Uh, so IPA traditionally is like a pale ale, but it has a higher alcohol volume and it has more hops, so it's more bitter. But then we have a kind of beer called a session IPA, which is like an IPA, but it has less alcohol and less bitterness. Well, surely that's just a pale ale at that point. You've gone up and then you've gone back down again. But no, we call it a session IPA because that's something that's going to appeal to customers. Yeah. Um, we actually have a beer in our fridge at the moment, which is a strawberry milkshake IPA. And that's kind of really straining at the boundaries of what can be considered a beer, let alone an IPA. It's kind of <laughs> thick and pink. It's got lactose in it. So it does taste very much like a milkshake, but it's still got that, that IPA name attached to it. That is crazy. Um, but maybe a good time to mention um, the reason why you also promote other beers, which I think is fantastic, other import beers and local craft beers. But you are running a kind of, is it called a phantom brewery, where you don't actually have your own brewery yet? You're using other breweries around, around town? That's right. Yeah. So we're still in the process of getting the, the money and the licenses to put our own brewery in our space. Um, so we're still making design decisions and, you know, trying to trying to raise the capital for this. Brewing equipment is extremely expensive, um, but we do have the space for it. And our plan is that at some point this year, we will have our brewery installed in our space in Tachikau. We'll be able to make our own beer there. But for now, yes, you're right, we're what's called a, a phantom brewery. And that means that we make our own beer, but we kind of, we rent space in other breweries to use their equipment in order to make our beer. Uh, and so that could be our own original beers, like the Shibasaki Session. It's a Session IPA, uh, <laughs> which is uh, our flagship beer. Um, or it, sometimes it's collaboration beers. So we make a beer together with another brewery um, and they take half of it and we take the other half of it. And then we both sell it through our own channels. Um, we made a beer last year with Devilcraft, which is uh, a very popular chain of craft beer and Chicago style pizza restaurants here in Tokyo. That one was called the Onikoen Kelsch. Uh, and actually there is more Onikoen Kelsch in the tank right now, waiting to, to finish fermenting. And then hopefully it should be ready for the 23rd of August when we can open up and start serving beer again. That's awesome. 
Um, I want to talk about the awesome names that are always chosen by craft breweries in a minute. Um, but one other thing that, that I found really interesting is your talk about how difficult it was to open a brewery to try to get funding, to try to get regional funding, which was for small businesses, going through seven months of training and then being told no uh, going to get, when coronavirus hit, going to get a takeout license, being told it was going to be 30 pages of difficult forms and take a few months and feeling like you were going to have to close. And then it changed to one form and a few days for takeout so you could survive. All the bureaucracy and all the red tape, uh, it's not easy to, uh, to start a craft beer brewery, it sounds like. Is that right? Yeah, so before we started this, I was kind of hoping that my job would be brewing great beer in the brewery and then drinking it in our tap room. But uh, it turns out that my job is mostly dealing with government bureaucracy and filling in incredibly complicated uh, forms in Japanese, which which is a real treat, let me tell you. Uh, it's, it's been good for my that. reading skills, if yeah. nothing else. But um, yeah, I mean, all around uh, making and serving and selling beer in Japan, there are there are all kinds of different uh, licenses that you need at every different step of the process, uh, and they're also administered by different government agencies. So there can sometimes be uh, somewhat frustrating situations where one agency will be telling you one thing, but then the other agency is telling you a different thing, and they're also completely unwilling to talk to each other or to budge. Oh. So you have to kind of act as the messenger between them and keep going backwards and forwards and saying, well, no, these guys told me this. Okay, now you're telling me that. I'll go back and tell them. Um, I, I kind of sometimes feel that if they were able to just have a five-minute conversation on the telephone, that might sort everything out. Yep. But uh, maybe my Japanese isn't good enough to uh, to arrange that yet. No, and I know these things are not easy in other countries, but come on. And did you have to do anything by fax? That's the big question. Uh, not by fax, no. Uh, let me think. No, I don't think I've had to do anything by fax, but, but you that's must mostly have needed some business seals, like wooden oh, seals, right? Yeah. The only reason I haven't had to do anything by fax is because um, all of these government offices are within cycling distance for me, so I can just go there directly and give them the forms. Uh, but yes, I can absolutely see a case where I would have to to fax something to somebody if that wasn't the case. Oh, that's incredible. Um, another interesting trend uh, you talked about, I think, in Japan by River Cruise was talking about how the higher percentage alcohols are actually the bigger sellers in Japan. And actually, I talked to a restaurant owner in the UK today um, preparing for this talk, and she talked about in her restaurant in the UK and pretty much the trend there is people are more interested in the low alcohol drinks so they can drink more of it and you mentioned the session ipa before which is a lower alcohol easier to drink for longer right um can you talk about that a little bit i found that trend in japan really interesting it is interesting isn't it and i'm not sure if we completely understand what it is that's happening or why it's happening but uh, i can see there you've got an image of the menu in our tap room. So those are the eight different beers that we were serving on that particular day. And the number in the top right hand corner is the alcohol percentage. So we do have that on display for customers. And I wonder if it's just a case of if that number is particularly high, that being something eye catching. I mean, oftentimes when people come in, they're 
they're maybe new to craft beer, they're not quite sure what they should be ordering. And we're very happy to try to, to guide them in that decision. But perhaps just seeing a very high percentage is some information that they can latch onto there and say, okay, well, this looks interesting. This is very different from the beer that I'm used to drinking. So I'm going to give this a go. Um, with regards to the amount of drinking, I remember when I was first sort of putting together the business case for our tap room, I rather foolishly based, you know, my estimates of how much beer people were going to drink on how much I drink when I go to a craft beer restaurant. Um, but the, the total number of beers that we sell in a month is actually pretty, pretty accurate. I got that quite right, but that's only because we attract about twice as many customers as I thought we were going to do. So twice as many customers, but they drink half as much beer as I thought they were going to. Um, people tend to come in and just have one or two beers. Uh, and in that case, maybe ordering something high alcohol um, is more possible than if you're planning to sit down and drink six or seven beers. Now, I thought that was really uh, surprising because another thing you mentioned is how many women customers, how many female customers you have. Um, you have about 50-50. Your clientele is men and women. Is that right? Uh, yeah, it depends on the day. But um, certainly, I think that there's a, a stereotypical image of craft beer being a, a very male pursuit. Um, men in flannel shirts sitting on the, duck, on the deck crushing IPAs. Um, but that hasn't really been our, our experience with it. And again, I'm not sure if I really have an answer for this or if I know why it is perhaps just that that pre preconception is is incorrect but um yeah we have a much higher proportion of uh female guests than i thought we were going to have when i was in the planning stage wow uh, the big question is does your wife like the beer my wife doesn't drink alcohol at all so it's probably for the best actually <laughs> You have one designated driver. Uh, that was something that Ken said. Ken Mukai of Mukai Craft Brewery, who I talked to last week, uh, was saying that was one of the reasons that they opened a craft brewery. He likes to make the beer. His wife likes to drink it. Well, also sell it. But um, they have a, a partnership in uh, both being passionate about it. I thought that's that a, was really cute. That's a perfect relationship, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, um, there's so many other things I would love to dive into. Is there anything we haven't touched on that you'd love to talk about? Running a business in Japan, uh, starting a craft brewery, starting to do your own. How about the partnership? You and your partner. We haven't talked about how you guys started working together, I don't think. Yeah, that's uh, that's down there looking very stern compared to my foolishness. Um, so in 2019, I guess, I was uh, working at Ishikawa Shuzo and thinking about maybe leaving to, to try setting up my own place to, to go independent. Uh, and around about that same time, um, Dan had just got back from a very long trip that he had been on. So he had, I think it took him two years. He had started in Washington state in America and cycled all the way down to Santiago in Chile. Uh, and when you, when you do a trip like that, it's then very difficult to go back to working in an office. I think it would be hard to, to re-enter society at the best of times, but to go back to, to sitting in an office for eight or nine hours a day, five days a week, 
would be a real challenge. So he was also looking for something that he could do that was maybe not that. Uh, and so we, we had been friends for quite some time and we got to talking uh, and I was thinking that it would be good to, to start the business together with a partner. Uh, and because Dan was such a, a big fan of drinking the beer, it seemed to be the perfect match. Maybe there's a, a parallel there between Ken Mukai and, and his partner. Yeah, sounds great. And uh, do you want to introduce your podcast that you guys do together? Absolutely. Yeah. Um, so it's called Sakamichi Nights. Uh, every week we, after, after we shut the, the tap room, we choose one or two beers from the menu. Uh, we drink them and we talk about them a little bit. Um, we're not really there to review the beers. Um, I think there's, there's an awful lot of negativity in the world. So we didn't want to be out talking about things that we didn't like, but instead celebrating things that we genuinely do like. Uh, and also all the beers we taste are beers that we sell and we don't sell bad beer. So we talk about the beer and then we kind of use that as a springboard to talk about some other issue, either surrounding brewing and the process of making beer or of running a small business in Japan and some of the challenges that we've faced. Um, it can be somewhat chaotic at times and neither of us have any experience doing this kind of thing. So the sound quality may be a little rough in a few of the opening episodes, but we're starting to figure it out now. Um, it is it is filmed, not filmed, it is recorded live in our tap room as well. So we're quite close to a hospital. Uh, one of the, the major motifs of Sakamichi Nights, I think, is that there will be a very loud siren going past at least once an episode. Um, so that's something something to listen out for. Yeah, I thought the, the podcast was great. It's great to hear about the process, but also about how it is running a small business in Japan. Uh, your collaboration with so many other craft breweries is really interesting and very important in terms of sustainability. Um, also, I love that about you are not a review podcast. No, you absolutely. are only talking about beers you like because you wouldn't have them on tap if you didn't like them, right? Exactly. Yeah, you have listened. That's that's 100% correct. I love that. Uh, do you want to talk about Clear the Board? What is Clear the Board? Oh, yeah, that's an event that we had uh, not last weekend, but the weekend before, which was the last weekend before the current state of emergency uh, in Tokyo. Uh, and so we had um, we had not expected this state of emergency to be declared quite so soon. And so we had a lot of beer in our fridge that was on tap, uh, kegs that had been tapped. And we knew that we were going to have to just put this to one side for, for six weeks during the state of emergency. We weren't going to be able to serve it. And it probably wouldn't go bad, but it's also not great for the beer to be sitting around for so long after it has been tapped. It can get overcarbonated or it can start to change its character a little bit. So we put out the call to our local community, hey, how many of these kegs can you finish this weekend? <laughs> And the response was was incredible, actually. I was in there on Saturday, and I've never seen anything like it. We've never been that busy before. Um, we had to call last orders at 7 because of the quasi-state of emergency. But if, if I hadn't done that, we would have run out of glasses. That's how much beer we were serving. Wow. Uh, so it was really great to see the, the response from the community here in Tachikawa. 
That's awesome. And a, a good way to reduce your waste as well. Make sure you sell it all. Uh, my uncle, now that I remember about it, my uncle had his own keg. He was a hardcore uh, drinker and had his own keg that he would take to bars and refill and keep it on tap wow. in his home. Um, I guess if you like drinking parties, you often have people over. It's probably not a bad idea. If you're an alcoholic, maybe not. <laughs> Um, but if you, if you buy your own keg and bring it in, will you guys fill it up for someone? Uh, so my question there is how did he clean the keg? Oh, maybe he didn't. I All don't right. know. Or we maybe, would be reluctant maybe to put he beer into got a... new kegs from the liquor store, right? Maybe that was so it, So then yeah. they would be cleaning it. So there are some kegs that you can open uh, at home that have a kind of openable lid and then you can just reach in there with a, a soapy sponge and give them the good clean. Um, but for the most part, kegs uh, are designed to be difficult to open and that's because they are pressure vessels. Right. Uh, and yeah. if you're if you're doing it without really knowing what you're doing or without the proper equipment, it can be incredibly dangerous to try and open a keg of beer with a, a screwdriver or a chisel or something. Please do not do that. Yeah. Uh, and so in order to properly clean a stainless steel keg of the usual kind, we, we have to use a machine to clean that. Um, it's not possible to do that at home. So the, the growlers, like you showed earlier, and we see in the photo here on the right, those you can refill and clean yourself, the smaller version, right? Ab absolutely, yes. So these, these are not pressure vessels. They will keep the beer in there and carbonated for, for a time but they're not filled at pressure. So you can just open them uh, as usual. And one of the uh, key design feature about most beer growlers is that they have quite wide mouths, quite wide openings. So you can reach in there with a sponge and you can get it clean. Um, we will fill just about anything that somebody brings in for us to fill with beer. Um, but one of the caveats is that it has to be clean. We're not gonna put the beer into a dirty container because it's going to spoil really fast and that's going to be a bad experience for whoever drinks it. Yeah. Uh, one other thing, getting back to regulations for starting a craft brewery in Japan, you said one of the requirements was to make 60,000 liters a year. That's right. Yeah. That's quite a lot of beer, isn't it? That's, that, that's quite that a is. lot of beer. How much, how many liters in one keg that you, you make? That uh, you most, most kegs are either 15 or 20 liters. Okay, so that's still a lot. A it, lot it is a, a lot, lot yeah. It's also just a lot to make uh, on a microbrewery of our size. So we're planning to have a 500 liter system installed. Um, for a Haposhu license, you only need to be able to make 6,000 liters of oh. beer. Can you explain Haposhu to our non-Japanese audience? Absolutely, yeah. So in Japan, there are different kind of ranks of uh, malted uh, barley drinks. Um, if it contains above a certain proportion of uh, malted barley as its grain bill, then it's considered to be beer. If it contains less than that, or if it contains some kind of adjuncts like uh, fruit peels or candies or that kind of thing, it's considered to be haposhu. And if it's basically just beer-flavored liqueur that doesn't actually contain any malted grains, then it's considered to be third-rank beer or third-rank drink. Uh, and so a lot of craft breweries, when they first open, will actually get a haposhu license. 
And you might even see on some craft beer labels, cans and bottles, that it says Haposhu on there. And for some consumers, that can be a bit of a negative because they see Haposhu as being the lower rank. It's lower than beer because it's usually cheaper in the supermarket. But for craft breweries, this is actually usually, it's not because they're using less malt. It's because they're putting in some kind of adjunct to make it into Haposhu because that's what their license requires. So for a long time, if you put in even a single coriander seed into the brew, you make 7,000 liters of beer, you put one coriander seed into it, that is now Haposhu, wow. 100%. Um, so so some places try and find a way around the rules by adding, mm -hmm. you might see on the label that they've got orange peel in there or coriander. The beer doesn't taste of orange, it doesn't taste of coriander. Those adjuncts are only in there to make it into Haposhu. So haposhu is not necessarily the alcohol content. It's it's if you add anything. That's right. Yeah, it's it's got nothing to do with the alcohol content. Um, it's only to do with um, how much grain was used during the the manufacture of it, or if there are any non beer adjuncts added into it. Um, so we are hoping to apply for a haposhu license because okay. of our the size of our system. It would be really difficult to make and to sell 60,000 liters of beer in a year. Uh, and so as part of the process of applying for that license, I actually had to make all of the recipes for all the beer that we were planning to make and send them to the tax office. Wow. And so I spent quite a long time reading through their rules about what ingredients are considered to be beer ingredients. They've recently changed it. So fruit is a beer ingredient now. Um, wow. spices are a beer ingredient. So you have to get a little bit more creative. And I was thinking, okay, well, if you transform the fruit in some way, then it's no longer a beer ingredient. You can't just juice it or peel it. You have to transform it. So if you transform it into a candy, if you put a candy into the beer, then that becomes haposhu. Mm -hmm. uh, and I spent a long time reading through these documents and designing these recipes. But then when I took them into the tax office, they said, Oh, you're using this particular clarifying agent, right? Those are all haposhu. That's all you have to do. Oh, you just have to wild. put the clarifying agent in at this stage instead of this stage, and then it is haposhu. Wow. And to give um, our audience a bit of understanding, the jibiru or the craft beer market in Japan is quite recent. It's really only about 10 years old before that only major brands were allowed to make beer. Is that right? Uh, yeah, that's kind of correct because um, the current uh, 60,000 liter minimum requirement is a fairly recent change to the law. So until sometime before that, um, I'm trying to remember, I think it might have been 6 million liters. What? Which, so it's it's a de facto banning of any kind of microbrewing um, right. industry. But that law was changed, I think, in the 90s, uh, and that led to the first boom in Jibiru, which means local beer. Um, and some really good breweries came out of that. So I think, for example, Baird is one of the breweries that has been around in Japan for a while. But then there was also quite a lot of just poor quality local souvenir type Jibiru that came out of that boom. And that was some local tourist spot making a beer and chucking in whatever it was that they were famous for in that local area. So it could be wasabi, nice could be shiitake mushrooms not so nice it could be you know fermented squid guts mm, getting into something there uh and 
So Wait, I think Jibiru Hiroshima, has... Hiroshima has a Miyajima beer. Miyajima Island is famous for deer. Mm. And they actually have a picture of deer on the can, but I don't think they're Do using they put the deer. deer in the can? No, no, I I don't think so. Yeah. <laughs> but uh yeah, now I have to check because you've said they put the local ingredient inside. I'm going to have to check that. I wonder if they put in some momiji manju into the beer. Oh, the well that wouldn't be too bad. Like a a sweet cake. The momiji manju is a sweet local cake with a red azuki bean inside. Mm. And that would be better than the deer. I would I would prefer that. You could make a very interesting pastry stout with some momiji yeah. manju. There you I've, go. I've only been to Hiroshima once, but I had a momiji manju with some ice cream in it, and uh, it was very delicious. Oh, that sounds good. Uh, we have people joining us today on HAPS from Los Angeles. Los Angeles, America in general, has a really long history for craft beer. Uh, do you have any connection or collaboration? You are importing some. Do you have any favorites in California? Uh, we don't directly import the beer. Okay. We we buy it from importing companies. Um, and, yeah, they, they, they import mostly from the West Coast. I think just for simple geographical reasons, most of the American beer that ends up in Japan tends to come from the West Coast. Um, recently, we had some beer in from a brewery called Heretic, which is a, a big favorite of ours. I believe they're in California, San Francisco. I might be wrong about that. My knowledge of Californian geography is, is fairly poor. Um, but yeah, they're, they're a really excellent brewery, and we always look forward to having that beer in. Yeah. And I mentioned before we started that I had a chance to visit a craft brewery in the San Jose area of California. And I was very impressed when I said, oh, I'd love to take some of your beer home. And they said, yeah, yeah, we can can it up for you. And they put it in a can right in front of me. Right. And they had a special machine. And unfortunately, they said, do you want the small can or the big can? And I said, the big can, thinking that it was just going to be like a Japanese style big can. And it was like, a mini keg can and i i well i shared it it was we all enjoyed it yeah it was did, fine. did you say unfortunately for getting more beer than you expected to get <laughs> and it was so reasonably priced but yeah unfortunately because i had things to do and they did not get done because i had a big <laughs> can of beer to finish so that's <laughs> called uh that's called a crowler uh, it's like a growler, but it comes in a can. And you're right that it needs a special piece of equipment in order to to seam the the top of the can onto the the rest of the can. Uh, and we have looked into maybe having a growler filling machine or even a, a crowler seaming machine in our tap room. But again, the um, the the licensing issues around that make everything challenging in Japan. So yeah. one of the requirements for breweries is that the packaging of beer and the serving of beer be done in different rooms. They can't be done in the same room. I, I have an idea. You mentioned this before we started. Yeah. Have you ever been to an Indian restaurant where they have the non maker in his own little glassed in cubicle? Nice. You could, you could do that for doing the canning or Absolutely. Just and a little plexiglass box, yeah. Yeah, we'd love that. Entertainment. I, I think basically you've stumbled on the solution that a lot of craft breweries have found is that they just build a little plexiglass box um, around the machine, which has a little door on it. And so when you close that door, that's now considered to be a separate room. And so you can do it. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, we would really like to be able to to have a, a, a crowler machine. Um mainly because aluminium cans are, are really 
a sustainable and economically friendly way of, uh, of packaging and selling beer. Yeah. Well, they're nice and light and the aluminum has a value in the recycled chain, unlike plastic, which has negative value you have to pay to get rid of. Right. Um, but aluminum, people want it to use in other industries or to recycle. So aluminum is a great option. Uh, glass may be a little bit heavy, but also it has value in the recycled chain. So glasses, glass and aluminum is always better than plastic, no matter what drink you're choosing, right? Glass growlers are also reusable as oh, well. Wonderful. So you can just, you can use them again and again and again. Um, whereas growlers, yeah, you use them once and then you recycle them. But uh, both are a lot more economically friendly than pet bottles. Um, during the last lockdown, some breweries we did see were selling their beer from their taps in pet bottles, in single-use pet bottles. But we felt that that was a very unsound way to move forward. We don't want to vastly increase the amount of single-use plastic um, in circulation in Tachikawa. So instead, we encouraged our customers to bring in their own containers, their own growlers or whatever they wanted, really, that we would then fill with beer. Well, in the olden days in Japan, like when I when I first came as well, uh, you would get big bottles of beer from the liquor shop and you would pay a little bit a deposit. You would drink it up and bring it back. It would be washed and reused. So in mm. terms of a more circular economy type of reuse system, bring that back. That sounds awesome. Absolutely. Yeah, um, I think. It adds a bit of labor because you have to, to wash and, and check and confirm all of those bottles. But it's like a lot of the things you were mentioning earlier. It might add a little bit of upfront cost, but overall it's going to save you money in the long run. Yeah. Um, we're, we're currently looking at some design decisions around the brewery as well uh, and, and looking at a few things like that. Um, of course, we want to, to save money as a business. Uh, and one of the things um, that happens in the craft brewery is that after you boil the wort, you have to cool it down before you can put it into the fermentation tank and add the yeast. If it's too hot, then the yeast will all die in there. Um, so you run it through something called a heat exchanger, where you have a counterflow of cold water going against the hot wort, and that cools it down. Uh, and so one of the things that craft breweries can do to save energy, save money, is to then capture that cold water which is now hot and then reuse it for the next brew it's still sterile it's still clean but we're not really losing any of this heat energy that we've put so much money uh, and and time into creating we're just exchanging it from one medium to another that sounds great and even capturing any wastewater and using it for cleaning or other great purposes mm. some people capture wastewater and use it through their toilet system um, you know, they, there are great innovations and ideas and use around the world. We just got to look for them. But that's great that you're looking. Thank you so much for all the great incentives and ideas that you're putting into action to reduce your impact as a business. That's wonderful. Yeah, absolutely. It helps to helps the environment. It also helps us as a business. You know, one of the key lessons I learned early on was that you should never throw away chemicals after one use. You can always find something else to do with them. You can always reuse them in some way. Yeah, awesome. Thank you so much for joining. That was a real insightful talk. I think uh, anybody who's interested in craft beer would definitely enjoy this one. Uh, you can, if you missed some of it, please watch in the replay. 
Uh, check out Sakamichi Brewing. They are on Twitter and Instagram and Facebook, and they have their own great website, which is sakamichibrewing.com, I think. Yep. Yeah, it is. I just checked. <laughs> <laughs> nice and simple. Yeah, we're, we're on all the social medias. We try and put up stuff every day about any new beers that we have or different stuff that we're doing in the brewery. Uh, and then, yeah, as you kindly mentioned, Dan and I record a podcast once a week where we try some of the beers and talk about them uh, a little bit. Um, for the current state of emergency, we are open for takeout only, but we're open every day from 12 till 8. We're a very short walk from Tachikawa Station, so if you're in the area, come by and say hi and we'll be very happy to, to talk to you about beer some more that's awesome and uh if you're a female drinker don't feel shy you're in good company apparently at sakamichi brewery so i can't wait to go and visit and have a pint on tap myself someday thank you so much matthew thank you good beer is for everyone awesome thank you everybody for joining some great questions and comments today see you next time have a good day everyone Bye.